Waterstone, our mission is to advance God's kingdom to God's glory. In 2020, we have been reading through the Bible together. We are currently learning from the prophets of Israel, who deliver God's intentions and promises by pronouncing judgment and proclaiming hope. Join us as we wrestle through the prophecies and see how they reveal the hope of Jesus, the Christ, the King. If you are able, we would love to see you at one of our services in person. We invite you to go to waterstonechurch.org to RSVP for a weekend service time on Saturday evening or Sunday morning. They could have used me as part of that video. I can never spell the stupid word. I type it in my computer and it always comes up on my spell check. You know. And is it Habakkuk or is it Habakkuk? Uh, who knows? Actually, no one does. They have no idea how it's properly pronounced, so... We'll go with that. Uh, would you join me in a moment of prayer? I want to pray for Larry this evening. As you know, he had surgery last week. The surgery went well. They did scans, and the lymph nodes came back cancer-free, so that was all positive. So that's really something to praise God for. Uh, but the recovery has been pretty rough, and he is still in the hospital. So if you you pray for him that that would go a little bit smoother and he'd get to come home. I think he'd appreciate that. So let's pray. Father, we do want to lift Larry up to you tonight. Father, we thank you for a successful surgery, but we ask that the healing would go quickly and that any complications he's wrestling through would resolve and that he'd get a, a green light to go home. Uh, Father, we just bring him before you. We we care about him deeply and love him and just want him uh, to come back strong and vibrant and uh, pray that you would heal him quickly. We also pray that you'd be with Jan as she walks through this with him. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to look at the book of Habakkuk tonight, or Habakkuk, however you want to say it. Um, but let me ask you a question. Why? I mean, Habakkuk is this short little book. It's about three chapters long. It was written 2,500 years ago. It's difficult to understand. It's a strange mix of poetry and narrative. Um, yeah, why bother? I was actually uh, doing research for this message, and I ran across an article uh, entitled, why we should preach from the book of Habakkuk, or Habakkuk. I don't know which way I'm going to say it tonight. Um, and, and the author argued that the message of Habakkuk is something we desperately need to hear today. And as I've wrestled with it this week, I agree that this little book is more relevant than you might think. In fact, I've come to the conclusion out of all the minor prophets, Habakkuk is by far the most relevant for this moment in time. And as we get into it, I think you'll begin to see why. Um, we don't know much about the man, Habakkuk. Um, he's a bit of an enigma to us. We know that he lived about 600 years before Jesus came onto the scene. We know that uh, he was a contemporary of Jeremiah. Um, but that's about it. We know what was going on politically at that moment in time. 
uh, Assyria and Egypt had been the dominant uh, imperial powers. And there's a nation called Babylon that is coming on the scene. In fact, Babylon defeats the Assyrians in 609 and then defeats the Egyptians in 605 and becomes the preeminent, the dominant uh, uh, political power and nation in the world at that moment. And the events in the book of, of Habakkuk uh, get tied up into that world of the Babylonians, as we'll see in a few moments. Habakkuk lived during the reign of a man named Josiah. He was one of the good kings in Israel. And during his reign, he, was, uh, he instituted a revival. He took down the Baals, the Asherah poles, the worship, uh, the incense altars that they used for worship. He got rid of the priests. They actually began to, to rebuild the temple because it had gone into disrepair. And what's fascinating, it's an interesting story. When they were repairing the temple, they discovered a book of the law. We think it was the Torah, and somehow they had lost it, which is kind of fascinating. Hilkiah, the priest, discovers this book, takes it to Josiah, he reads it, and he's pierced in the heart. He realizes that they've they as a nation and as a people have been incredibly disobedient. Um, so he calls the nation to, to repentance. And there's this huge revival. They begin to celebrate the festivals again that mark the great acts through the history uh, of Israel. They begin to celebrate the, the Passover. I, I mean, things are going great my guess is, is that Habakkuk is incredibly excited as a prophet of God to live in the midst of this moment in history of revival. Just awesome. And then tragedy strikes. Josiah, for some reason, decides he has to enter a conflict with the Egyptians. Goes out to battle. And even though he's in disguise, he gets killed. And with, without Josiah on the scene, Israel reverts incredibly quickly to their old ways. Leadership always makes a difference in leading a nation. They revert to their old ways, and they fall into apostasy. And the social fabric of the nation uh, is ripped apart and begins to, to be destroyed. Um, now, understand Habakkuk lived through this revival, had these great expectations. Suddenly, Josiah is killed, and now he's incredibly disappointed as they go back into, into apostasy. And what he does is he begins to have this conversation with God. In fact, that's what the, the book of Habakkuk is. It's his conversation with God. Um, two complaints and then at the end, a, pr a prayer. First complaint. Now, let me give you a quick overview. We'll come back and then uh, uh, explain it with more depth, try to take some lessons out of it. The first complaint is simply this. As he looks on the social fabric as it falls apart and their, their violence and the injustice and the, the, the wrong done in the, the court system and the oppression of people, he goes to God and he complains and he says to God, how come you're not doing something? How come you're not disciplining your people and bringing them back to yourself? The revival is so great. How could you let this happen? Why aren't you doing anything? That's his complaint. 
And God answers his complaint. He says, you wait. I'm going to do something really amazing. You won't believe it. I'm going to bring the Babylonians. And they're going to bring judgment on Israel. Now, you've got to understand, the Babylonians were ruthless, vicious, inhumane, idolaters, relentless, imperialistic. They, 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 they were terrible. And, you know, Habakkuk hears that the Babylonians are coming. They're going to be the instrument of God's judgment. And he says, wait a second. You can't. You can't do that. They're worse than us. How can you? And that's the second complaint. He goes to God and he says, look, how can you use the wicked to judge the right? At least we're not as wicked as them, the more righteous. That makes no sense. How could you possibly do that? That's the second complaint. And God comes back and answers that complaint as well. And he says, Habakkuk, just wait. I am going to use the Babylonians to bring judgment on my people. But eventually, the Babylonians will be judged as well. In fact, he gives five woes that attack uh, their greed and their violence and their idolatry and their injustice. And he makes the point, just, just give it time. What they sow is what they will reap. That's the conversation. Then in chapter 3, Habakkuk breaks out in this prayer. And the prayer is absolutely fascinating. It, it's, it's this incredible piece of poetry. And, and the, the end of the prayer is very haunting. And, and we'll see that. Anyway, so the book of Habakkuk is simply about this. Uh, Disappointment, um, failed expectations. That's what it's about. Habakkuk had all these expectations of how life was going to unfold and how God was going to, to, to act in the midst of this, the, this great time, and none of that happens. And life disappoints him. Nation goes sideways, and then God disappoints him because God doesn't respond the way he thinks he, he should. And he's living in this disappointment, and he's frustrated, and he's angry, and he's confused, and he's struggling to understand the ways of God and why God is doing what he's doing and what has happened to his people. Failed expectations. Here's where the book is relevant. The reality is, if we live long enough, all of us are going to face those moments in life where life doesn't measure up to our expectations. And neither does God. And at those moments, the question is, how are we going to respond? Might happen in your marriage. Great expectations of how good it's going to be. You pray that it would be that way, and then it begins to crumble, and you ask God to change your spouse and to change you, and it doesn't happen. He doesn't do what you expect. And you're disappointed and frustrated. Maybe it's with your job and your career. You begin and you have this vision of climbing the ladder and getting to the top of the rungs, and, but it doesn't happen. And you don't really understand why. And you're disappointed and frustrated and angry and God hasn't made it happen and you're wondering, where is he? 
Maybe it's with your health. I mean, none of us expect to, to, to have our health deteriorate. And yet the reality is all of us at some moment in time will experience that. And we'll ask God to intervene. And sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. And he doesn't behave according to expectation. It happens sometimes with our finances. It happens sometimes with our friendships. It happens with our kids. We want our kids to be people of faith. We, we do our best to raise them right. We have expectations of how they'll be when they grow up. And, you know, they, sometimes they just don't, they don't measure up. And you plead with God to intervene, and you expect him to. And he doesn't, at least not in the way you would like. What do we do when life and God do not meet up to our expectations. Habakkuk gives us this great model of how to respond, and that's what I want us to take from this book tonight. Uh, Habakkuk gives us three responses that I think are helpful. The first thing we'll see with Habakkuk is, is that he comes to God and he wrestles. Habakkuk comes to God and he argues and he complains and he questions and he asks, why? God, why? Uh, you see this in, in both these complaints, uh, chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. He says, how long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you, violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? I don't get it, Lord. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. He's complaining that his people have turned away from God and God's not doing anything. And then when he hears about the Babylonians coming, verse 13, he turns back to God and he complains some more. He says, Lord, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate treacherous, the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Do you know, I think in one sense, God wants us to argue and complain and question him and ask why. And at least you see it happen all the time in scripture. I don't know that we pay much attention to it, but Abraham does it and Elijah does it. Job for sure does it. Even Paul in some of his prayers argues with God. I think we get a little squeamish about arguing with God. <laughs> Martin Luther, who was a theologian, part of the Reformation a long time ago, didn't react well when people questioned God. In fact, he writes about being asked questions about God that he felt were impertinent. He wrote this, he says, when someone asked Augustine where God was before heaven was created, St. Augustine answered, he was in himself. When another asked me the same question I said to him, he was building hell for such idle, presumptuous, fluttering, and inquisitive spirits as you. <laughs> uh, I think I side with Augustine on this one. I think that wrestling with God is a promoter of the development of our faith. I don't think that simply blind, passive acceptance and submission to whatever is happening, whatever he brings into our lives, 
is an act of great faith. Rather, I think that's sometimes apathy and resignation. And I don't think that apathy and resignation develop the muscle of faith. I think that, that, that wrestling with God, arguing with him, asking the hard questions, asking why becomes a catalyst for the development of our relationship with God. I, <laughs> I think God likes feisty saints. I do. Because they're not passive. They're not apathetic. They're looking at life and looking at God and they're trying to match things up. And if you're honest, you got to wrestle. Right now, my uh, daughter and son-in-law are living with us and they have a two-year-old, <laughs> Madeline. And she is a, a handful. I don't know if she's a feisty saint, but she is a feisty kid. Her favorite word in the world right now is why. Eat your peas. Why? Don't hit the dog. Why? Don't push the buttons on the television remote. Why? Don't stand in that stool. Why? <laughs> it exasperates me on the one hand. On the other hand, I love it. Because what is she trying to do? She's trying to understand her world. She's trying to figure things out. She's trying to grow up and mature. And that's what you do. You wrestle with life and world and you ask questions. Questions are like the weight pushing against the muscle of faith. Without that weight, the muscle never develops. I don't think it is helpful to play the game of denial or silence. I don't think that stoicism is a virtue. God wants honesty, and that means uh, at times we have to make known our anger and the depths of our raw emotion, and he can handle it. Hiding it from him doesn't mean he doesn't know. He knows our hearts. So I think we're to wrestle with God, but, important but, I think there's a good way and a bad way to wrestle with God, okay? And I think Habakkuk shows us the good way. Uh, um, he wrestles with God appropriately. Look at verses 12 and 13. He says, Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, you will never die. You, Lord, have appointed them to execute judgment. You, my rock, have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up the more righteous? So he's in the midst of this complaint. He's arguing with God. But, but notice a couple things. The first is this. He does it with honesty, but with incredibly deep respect. I think when we argue with God, we have to be honest. We have to make our feelings known, our doubts, and our questions. But... As we do it, we have to remember who we are and who he is, right? And Habakkuk talks about that. He's the one from everlasting. He's the one who will never die. He gets who God is, and he handles him with incredible respect and reverence. He remembers who God is, and at the same time, we have to remember who, who, who we are, right? Who are we? Here's who we are. We are bags of chemicals and a bunch of water right? Who God has formed 
uh, formed into human beings and amazingly has put his image in us. So from one perspective, we're nothing. And he's everything. So when we come before him, we, we want to be honest, but humble and bold. Honestly, to argue with God, you need some chutzpah. But that's not a bad thing. Just don't be irreverent. The second thing that's really interesting is that when Habakkuk argues with God, he argues his case when in the context of faith. In other words, he, he, he never comes to God and says, you know, if you don't answer this, if you don't give me a good explanation, then I'm not going to believe in you. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to forget following you. Never says that. In fact, as he registers his complaint, he says, you're my God, my Lord, my Holy One, my rock. He's not walking. It never enters in his mind to walk away from his faith. You know, I think some people who argue with God come with this attitude, well, God, if you can explain to me why this happened in my life or why this tragedy occurred or explain to me the problem of evil, then, then I'm not going to believe as if because we can't understand the mysteries and the ways and the infinite being of God because we can't understand that he must cease to exist. You know, if there's no good answer to the problem of evil, then God's not there. <laughs> Did it ever occur to people who, who think that, that that's incredible arrogance and a lot of stupidity? I mean, it's just not rational to say because I can't understand or comprehend God because I don't understand the explanation. It makes no sense to say there's not one, and it makes no sense to say, therefore, he must not exist. God's existence is not dependent upon my intellectual comprehension of his being and his ways. God invites us to argue with him, to ask why, to be honest, to share our anger, our frustration, our doubts. But we need to do it with respect. And we need to do it in the context of faith. So you wrestle with God. Second thing, when life does not meet your expectations and God does not either, the second thing I think we need to do is really work hard at seeking to understand God's ways. And I think that's, that's what Habakkuk is doing. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. He says this. He says, I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. The ramparts were the, that part of the wall that went around the city where you could be on the top of it and look out. It was this defensive position, uh, but this position that lets you oversee and get perspective on things. And I think it's a good image of what Habakkuk is trying to do. He says, I will look to see what he, God, will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. So Habakkuk registered his complaint before God. When he does, he's representing the people. That's what a prophet does, represent the people to God and God to the people. So whatever answer he gets, he's going to take back to the people. So he's standing on the ramparts. He's looking for God to answer him so that he can tell the people, I will look to see what he will say to me and what answer I'm to give to this complaint. And then God answers him. And the answer is in the rest of chapter 2, 
why are you using the Babylonians? And he explains to him, look, at the appointed time, they will get their judgment. Their, their greed will be judged, their injustice will be judged, their violence, their seduction, their idolatry. And historically, that's exactly what happens. In 539 B.C., Babylon is conquered by the Persians. And what they did to others is done to them. And God is saying, you just need a little more perspective to understand my ways. Now, I want to step out a little bit and highlight uh, some of the ways of God when it comes to this issue of judgment. And this is kind of things we see through the book of Habakkuk, okay? Some about the ways of God. First, have to realize that God is a God of judgment and wrath. He judges evil and he judges injustice in his time and in his way. Now, I think it's hard for us to really embrace that notion or that view of God, of his wrath and his judgment, because we don't like it, and it's especially difficult in our culture, because we live in the world of what I like to call the mush God, right? The, the soft and fuzzy God. He's warm. He's just loving and gracious, and that's what we preach all the time, and that's the truth we give people. And there's a lot of truth in that. God is loving and gracious, but that's not the whole truth about God. God is gracious and loving, and he's also just. And because he's just, he judges. And when he judges, you often see the manifestation of his wrath. And we don't focus on that much, and we don't proclaim that to our world very much. It's one thing to go out to the world and say, God loves you. It's another thing to go out in the world and say, guess what? God is going to judge you and me and us. Which message do you think goes over better? But both are true. God judges nations and people and individuals. I want you to reflect on that for a moment, because if that's true, if God is a God of justice and judgment, judgment, and this is part of why I think this book is so relevant, is then right now we need to reflect on what's going on in our world. Thomas Jefferson wrote in Notes on Virginia, he writes this, he says, Indeed, I tremble for my country when I reflect that God is just and that his justice cannot sleep forever. Could some of what we are experiencing in our times be part of God's judgment and wrath targeted towards us? Could, could we be living in one of those moments when God thunders his judgment against injustice, and right now we're part of the target? Could he be judging our arrogance and our pride and our sense of superiority and our hubris and our professed greatness? Could he be judging our self-centeredness and selfishness, our disregard for the plight of others, our habit of putting ourselves and our tribe first, even at others' expense? 
Could he be judging our greed and our commitment to materialism and entertainment and the media as sources of fulfillment? Could he be judging our violence, our slaughter of millions of unborn or deliberate flight from monogamous family, our normalizing of immorality of all kinds? Uh, could he had enough of our neglect of the poor and the oppressed and our apathy towards racism and our mistreatment of the immigrant and the refugee and our blind eye to the injustices in our social order and our culture? Could he be judging our love of idolatry, of power, and it's used for our own gain at the expense of others. Could we as a nation and people be deserving of God's judgment? Could that be part of what is going on? And could we just be too blind to see I'll let you wrestle with that question, um, but I think at the very least we have to ask it. And if we find the answer to be yes, then we have to repent. And we have to call our nation to repent. Another thing about God's ways. When God brings judgment, he often uses evil and evil people to accomplish it and his purposes. I mean, historically, uh, through history, God has used evil nations and evil events and plagues and natural disasters to bring judgment on his people and on nations. Now, those aren't always acts of judgment, but often they are. And the Babylonians are horrifically evil, but their wickedness, their evil, did not keep God from using them for his purposes. And, and I think like Habakkuk, it, it is hard for us to believe that God would use evil people and evil things to bring his discipline. But he does. And here's the interesting thing. The fact that he uses it as judgment and uses them as judgment does not excuse their culpability. The Babylonians are still guilty. Does not make them not responsible simply because God is using their evil for his purposes. So the last thing we want to do is to condone or become complicit in the sin and the evil that God is using to bring judgment. And if we're not careful, it's easy for us to do that. The last thing we need to understand about God's ways, not only is he got a judgment and he uses evil and evil people to bring about his judgment, but the last thing is this, he redeems his judgment, even his acts of wrath. In chapter three, Habakkuk prays. And in this prayer, what he does it's like a highlight reel of God's 
acts of judgment that are connected to God's acts of salvation. And Habakkuk is reminding himself that yes, God judges and exhibits his wrath to judge his enemies and discipline his people, but as a result of that, he brings salvation. Prime example is Egypt and the Exodus, right? God brings these plagues on Egypt. They're, they're plagues of judgment. They're evil. They kill people. They destroy. It's God judging the people. But out of those plagues, what happens? He brings the freedom of the Jewish nation. So God is often using his judgment and wrath to result and bring about his purpose. I like what Eugene H. Peterson says. He says, God uses bad men to accomplish his good purposes. And the great paradox of judgment is that evil becomes fuel in the furnace of salvation. Now here's what's interesting with the Babylonians attacking the Jewish people. Right, when the Babylonians come and they sack Jerusalem, what they do is they end up taking thousands of people back to Babylon and into exile. And they spread these Jews into all these cities around the world. It was their way of making sure that, that the nation they had conquered didn't rise up in rebellion. Now what's interesting, when that happened, the Jews no longer had access to their temple and a means of worship. So they developed an alternative structure, and that alternative structure was the, was the synagogue. Now, when the exile's over and people come back, a lot of the Jews stay where they were exiled too, and these synagogues become part of the functioning community. And the Jews in those places reach out and reach Gentiles, and we call those Gentiles God-fearers. And in one sense, the Jews are finally accomplishing the purpose that God had designed from the beginning, that they would become a blessing to the world. It's accomplishing his purpose. But the other thing, and Habakkuk never realizes, when Jesus comes and his church begins to proclaim the gospel, their primary strategy was to go to those cities. And where did they go? They went to the synagogues. And who did they talk to? They went to the God-fearers. And it was the God-fearers who were the most responsible to the gospel. And they were there because of the judgment of Babylon 600 years earlier. God even redeems his judgment and wrath. God is a God of redemption. And even when we are disappointed in life and in him and things don't work out, we have to remember that he redeems we have to step back and understand in some way for his people, he will work out his purpose and his plan. And we have to rest in that. So, you wrestle with God, you work to understand his ways, then the last thing you do is you choose to be a person of faith. When... Um, Habakkuk writes his prayer in chapter 3. I think he is writing it during the siege of Jerusalem. A number of years ago, I was in Israel, and we were at a tell, um, uh, 
archaeological site of an old city. And I remember that day I was sitting there and the sun was shining. It was, wasn't too hot, wasn't too cool. The breeze was blowing. And I was just thinking about what life would have been like for those people in those cities. But as you looked at the tell, you could tell that that city had been destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed. And I began thinking, well, what would it be like to be in that city when the Babylonians came and began their siege? What would it be like to be in Jerusalem when the Babylonians arrived and everybody from the countryside flooded into the city so it was just a mass of humanity and they shut the doors and nobody goes in and nobody goes out. And you know, in a siege, what the, the army would do, it would surround the city and they would wait. They would wait for the food to run out and the water to run out and for disease to take over. And if you were in the city, there was nothing to do but wait. And suddenly the hunger would become famine. The lack of water would become incredible thirst. Disease would begin to raise its ugly head and first the old would die and then the, the feeble and then the young. And as you're sitting there, you know you have no hope against the Babylonians. They're not simply going to go away. You'd be there bored to death, but hear the constant noise of wailing. And then the attacks would come. Arrows would come over the, the walls. The battering rams would begin to pound on the gates. And you would sit there fearful for your life with good reason. Because when they would sack the city, they would brutalize the kids, they would rape the women, they would kill the people who were of fighting age. It was a horrific, horrific moment to live through. And I think it's, it's at that moment that, that Habakkuk writes this poem. And what he does in this poem is he chooses Despite his circumstances and what he's experiencing, he's choosing to be a person of faith. Listen to what he says in verse 16. He says, I heard, and my heart pounded, and my lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones, and my legs trembled. He, he knows they're coming, and he knows what the siege is going to be. But then he says, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. He knows uh, God has a bigger purpose. I know that. I'll trust. I'll be a person of faith. And then in verse 17 and 18, he says this, though the fig tree dies, uh, the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen, and no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. He says, I don't care what the circumstances are like. I know that the ultimate meaning of life is in Him. And in that I'll rejoice. And then verse 19, he says, The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet feet. My feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to tread on high heights. He says, I'm trusting. In other words, there 
is power when God lets us down and life doesn't play out like we expect to simply choose to be a person of faith. That's why the key verse in Habakkuk is verse 4 of chapter 2. Right? The righteous person will live by his faithfulness. Paul picks that up and uses it in Romans. So that's the question. When life and God don't measure up to our expectations, will we be people of faith? In the midst of the pandemic, will we be people of faith? When our finances are devastated, will we be people of faith? When we lose our job, and our source of income, will we be people of faith? When someone close to us dies that we loved, will we be people of faith? When everything crumbles around us and even our health deteriorates and nothing works out like we expect, will we be people of faith? When suffering shatters our world, will we be people of faith? That's the question. And that's the book of Habakkuk. Let's pray. Father, it's easy sitting inside a building, listening to words spoken to decide at that moment that, yeah, we're, we're going to be, be people of faith, Lord. We're going to trust you. The challenge actually comes when we're in the midst of life and things aren't going as we would like or the way we expect and you seem to be silent in circumstances. Well, none of our circumstances indicate that you're even present. Then the question comes. Will we be people of faith? Lord, I pray that you would enable us to say yes. Yes, we, we will trust God. We'll wait on him. We'll rejoice in him. We'll trust in him no matter what. Make that true about us, we ask. In Christ's name and for Christ's sake and his kingdom, amen.